Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father Yahweh, as we come before you now on this Sabbath day, a day of, of introspection, a day of looking into your word, of learning more of you. We're so grateful that we can come at this time, but there are so many who are alone somewhere who wish they could have this regular fellowship, but we encourage all, no matter where they are, to join us online and come if you can. Pray also that you'll be with those that have a special need, those that are suffering, the many that are dealing with health problems. Be there, Yahweh Rapha. Pray that you'll be with us this message, make these words yours, and guide us always as we strive to walk that narrow way. And in Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, I, here we are, just seems like just a few weeks ago we were celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and now we have the Feast of Weeks, and coming up will be about, what, five months? We've got tabernacles, so it's coming fast, and I know I keep thinking about the high gas prices, I think it'd be a good idea between now and then for those that live a ways away to... Put a little money away for those higher fuel prices. Don't let that stop you from obeying Yahweh. I know it can be hard at times and prices are up everywhere, but uh, we need to put Yahweh first in everything. Uh, I have a, a slide here, and you'll see that little arrow at the bottom right. Look at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's Earth, 900 million miles away. On that speck, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The summation of our joy, suffering, thousands of religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in history of mankind lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitations of some other corner, how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. When I first looked at this photo online and saw the speck of the earth and read Carl 
Sagan's essay, A Pale Blue Dot, I was moved. And it wasn't just because of the, of, of the, the way that uh, the earth and the vastness of space fill in, but the way he showed raw human ambition in the context of its total pitifulness in the eyes of Almighty Yahweh. We see it all the time. People fighting and clawing to get ahead, to get the top of the ladder, to have that nice big home and all the toys to go with it. And for what? In a few short years, it's all gone. And all that striving after wind is not even a memory. Even they will soon be forgotten. Without a greater context, most of what we do in life would have very little meaning. This gift of life we enjoy has no point if we live just to live. Without a framework of a greater life and promise, our lives now would be irrational, senseless, pointless, and ultimately hopeless. That's the unbeliever living in this world and irrelevant life that has no future assurance. Think about it. The one who doesn't believe. You know, we all exist in context. You meet someone new and you say, oh, where are you from? Do you have a family? Are you married? What do you do for a living? With those questions, you're ascertaining the person's context in life. The way to understand the person. Everything has context. Context gives meaning. If someone in biblical times could read today's newspaper, they'd really be at a loss. They would have a tough go of it. They couldn't make much sense of it. They would need a lot of context and background to understand today's newspaper. For instance, our ancient newspaper reader might see a two-car crash report and wonder, what's a car? What makes it go? Is it pushed? Is it pulled? Is 70 miles an hour fast or slow? What's a mile? What's a highway? What are airbags, steering wheels, brakes? What are helicopters and ambulances, and what's a hospital? That's a lot to digest from 2,000 years out, isn't it? A lot to understand. So here we are, reading scripture from two to 3,000 years away and trying to ascertain the meaning. even through different languages that have come down to us in translations. And that's why context is key to Bible understanding. Without it, we are half blind to many verses in the scriptures, which lead to erroneous beliefs, false doctrines, people going the wrong direction, people thinking they're saved when they're not. What happens when we ignore biblical context? Take, for example, 2 Thessalonians 2, seven without any context. Just read it for what it is. Paul writes, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who lets will let until he be taken out of the way. Huh? What's that all about? Well, 
who are, what is this mystery of iniquity? So we must go back to verse 3 to get the background, to get the context. We discover that we're dealing with a man of sin, the anti-Messiah. The evil one who's going to be against Yahshua and also say he is Yahshua. That's the subject of this chapter. He opposes Yahweh, verse 4, and makes like he is Yahshua. He arrives on the scene as a mysterious person, and his wickedness and his iniquity, his works are in secret. In fact, it says he is already at work. Then there's the one who will stop him, but allows the evil workings for now, it says. But ultimately, the evil one will be taken out of the way at the return of Yahshua the Messiah, verses 7 to 8. So we can really understand once we understand the setting, understand the meaning through the context. In modern parlance, you've got to know the backstory to understand what many verses are conveying. You have to go back and look at that. Without it, it's the wild, wild west and wide open to any interpretation and error out there. Even individual words exist within a context. Take the popular idiom, that's golden. Standing alone, that's golden, could apply to a prospector striking pay dirt. That's golden means something quite different to a writer finding the perfect solution to a mystery novel. That's golden means something to the politician selling a vacated Senate seat. If you remember, Blago of Chicago. Context is fundamental to Bible interpretation. And it's amazing how much it is ignored. That's what I want to talk about today. Words mean different things depending on the circumstances in which they were written. You can't expect accuracy when you yank a word or a verse out of the middle of a chapter and make a, a teaching out of it or try to understand it. You can't do it, not properly. You've probably heard it said that you can make the Bible say anything you want, and I guess that's true if you ignore the context. But context is a safeguard. You can go back and look at the whole paracope and say, hey, no, wait a minute, that's not what it's saying. Because it's in a different context of what you're saying. Who would take a book other than the Bible and pull an isolated phrase out of the middle of it, claiming you know what it means and ignoring its surroundings? And yet preachers everywhere begin their short Sunday messages with the, with the words, my text for today is, and proceed to build a 20-minute sermon from a single sentence or part of a sentence, snatched from its supporting passages. And because of this ministerial trickery, I would call it, people are used to entering and exiting portions of the Bible, of Scripture, without considering the contextual surroundings. They're getting used to it. They pull and, and uh, take things as they are. And this practice gives the idea that we can read and perfectly understand verses in isolation. Taught, I guess, basically to do. Proper understanding begins by studying passages before and after the verse. The source manuscripts in Hebrew and Greek are one huge, unending 
string of words. If you look at it, we've got them down there on the wall, uh, both the Hebrew and Greek excerpts. And it's just one big bunch of Greek and Hebrew letters, all stuck together without chapter, without verse divisions, without verse numbers, without paragraphs, without sentences, or even punctuation. And that all had to have been figured out by translators. This fact supports reading the entire passage, the entire chapter, and maybe even the entire book to get the context for individual verses. It wasn't until the Geneva Bible came along in 1560, the first one to use chapter and verse divisions. Geneva Bible is the Bible came across on you know, the Mayflower and some way back then. That's what they were using. They didn't use the King James because that hadn't been done yet. It hadn't been translated yet. For proper Bible understanding, the most important context is realizing that the Bible harmonizes from Genesis through Revelation. That's the Bible's context. The whole message of the word is cut from the same cloth, not cut into pieces with the latter ignoring, throwing out the first part. That means Old Testament and New Testament work together. They don't contradict or convey different messages. They're the same message. The covenant. It's kind of the glue that sticks it all together. Now, there's a little difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Of course, we know there's no animal sacrifices in the New Covenant. But beyond that, there isn't that much difference. Maybe a little bit of difference in administration of the priesthood, but that's pretty much it. That's the covenant. What Yahweh had for Israel back then, he has for us today. And that's basically to obey him. Israel is still the context of the covenant that Yahweh makes with us. And Christianity began as a sect of Judaism, a fact that blows right by most churchgoers. They have no clue that it was based in their their. Churchianity was based in the Hebraic faith. And it answers a lot of questions if they would only realize it. Here's a tip for engaging someone who has an opposing view about a scripture. Make them support their point with book, chapter, and verse, and not just throw out something that they heard, some phrase, that their, their favorite phrase. Don't let them just scattergun a bunch of different ideas, disconnected arguments, just so they can avoid your argument. You've got to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you didn't answer this question. And a lot of times, they won't because they can't. Here's a verse that leads many astray. In Romans 3.28, Paul says that a person is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. From this verse alone, many will say faith is all you need for salvation, not works of obedience. Don't make the mistake of taking that verse out of context. Go back to verses 1 and 2 of the chapter, which sets the stage for what Paul's writing here. What advantage does the Jew have, he says. Answering in verse 2, Paul says, The Jews have a great advantage because they receive the oracles of Yahweh to pass on to us. Now, what are oracles? What are oracles? They're the laws Yahweh spoke at Sinai. And they preserve those, he says, for us. Wait a minute. Why? I mean, I thought the law was abolished. 
Why why would you do that? You can prove that in Acts 7.38. This is he that was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Now notice, who received the lively oracles, the lively laws to give unto us? That's the key. It clearly is talking about laws, statutes, and judgments at Sinai to give, pass on to us through the Hebraic word, through the Hebraic language. Now we know that what was given to Israel and Judah, the statutes and judgments, are still binding in the New Testament. We can prove that over and over and over. Or Paul wouldn't even have mentioned that the Jews have a chief advantage as custodians. Why? If it's irrelevant, why would they have a chief advantage if it's no longer necessary? They have preserved these statutes for the next generations and for us. Paul ends with verse 31. We establish the law. Always go to the end. That's another part of the context. Not always the beginning, but the end. He says, but we establish the law. There's the answer right there. A man asked about the new moon, thinking it's the conjunction, you know, the black nothing. It's not there. It's black that you can't see. And I explained in the historic record, at least two Israelites would go out on a good spot, maybe on a mountain somewhere, and they'd watch for that crescent. This is provable. It's provable in the Talmud. It's provable historically. It's, it's, that's the way they did it. And when they'd see it, they'd run to the Sanhedrin, to the chief priest, and he, uh, they say they had images of the crescent on his wall. And he'd say, does it look like this? No. Does it look like this? Uh, a little thinner than that. Does it, and they both would have to agree. I guess they would quiz them separately to see if their stories uh, you know, agreed. And then they would sanctify what they called sanctify the new moon, the crescent. They knew what a new moon was because they were given the new moon precept from Yahweh. Deuteronomy 16.1, Yahweh says to look closely for, observe the new moon. Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot just by looking. And Deuteronomy 16.1 says, literally watch for the new moon of young ears of grain. Watch for the new moon. But you can't see anything when you're looking for a blank spot in a black sky. How can you watch for it? It's insanity, really. (laughs) What's the point? It's kind of like this last new moon. We all went out and uh, thick clouds. Well, you never know. Sometimes Yahweh will just separate it. We've seen that too. But uh, I was pretty convinced it wasn't going to happen because it was slow moving and they weren't going anywhere. And so, but we tried. We were doing what Yahweh tells us to do. But when you go out there, firmly, obviously not going to see it because it's no moon there. I don't like to call it a black moon. It's just a black because there's no moon there. It's behind. It's behind and it's, uh, uh, the sun can't get around it to make a, the edge, you know, light up. You can't take passages out of context, and you can't apply extraneous evidence pulled for, from unrelated circumstances to prove an impertinent point. 
as has been done with Sunday worship based on the alleged Sunday resurrection of Yahshua. This one always is a, a real problem, often used to prove Sunday worship. 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul writes upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as Yahweh has prospered him, prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. And they'll say, this is passing the offering plate at church on Sunday morning. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is he, first of all, what is he telling these people to do? He's telling them in advance to get their gatherings together. Now, why didn't they just wait till they went to Sunday morning church? Something's not adding up. Well, the context is 1 Corinthians 16.1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints. Oh, oh, this isn't for the church as they might say, it's for the saints. As I have given orders to the assemblies of Galatia, even so do you. He's going around telling all the assemblies that he's visited, help Jerusalem out. They've got a problem. They've got uh, a food problem because they've uh, had drought. And these people are going to start dying if we don't help them, their brethren. That's what he's talking about. And I'll come along and I'll... Send some people to your house, and they'll grab the bags of whatever you collected, and I'll, we'll take it to Jerusalem. That's what it's talking about, because we know the context. There was a famine. We know from other passages that Paul was a Sabbath keeper. He wasn't a Sunday keeper, and preached every Sabbath, not every so often on a Sunday. Every Sabbath, Acts 16, 13, 17, 2. 18.4, you can read it. So using 1 Corinthians 16.2 to support Sunday worship falls flat in light of context. Romans 14.5 is used to support whatever day you want to worship on, claiming Yahweh leaves it all up to us. One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Oh, I think I'm going to keep Wednesday. That sounds like a good time. I'd like to get off in the middle of the week. I'll, I'll tell my boss I'm observing Wednesday and I can get that day off. That's, that's what they, I guess, ostensibly are saying about this passage. You read the foregoing, verse 2 to 3, and you find the whole chapter is talking about eating, not worshiping. About fasting, about vegetarianism. That's what it's talking about. And you can decide what day you want to fast on. I think the Pharisees did Monday and Thursday, something like that. But they decided that's the days they were going to fast on. And that's fine. Yahweh leaves it up to you. But this isn't talking about worship. This isn't talking about his special day. Everything has to be in context. Or you're going to end up on a bunny trail heading down a dead-end bunny rabbit hole. Paul writes in... Romans 2.12, that the law, the law will judge sinners, which is a truth that harmonizes with Revelation 20. So Paul, in context, says we have received grace by Yahshua for obedience to the faith. There's that hated word there, obedience. We once had a meeting, a little seminar, and uh, some minister showed up, and I was telling him that he says he 
we talk about the Holy Spirit. It says, uh, you know, the word says, Acts 5.32, that, that uh, Yahweh gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And boy, he just lit up like a cannon. He didn't want to hear that word obedience. And many don't. Because they don't want it to change their life. <laughs> they like the way it is. Well, I just, you have to modify your life to your Savior. Or what's he going to do, reward you for nothing? In James 2.17, James uh, writes that faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. Contradiction with Paul? Not at all. James defines how faith operates. If it is not proved by works, it is dead, has no life. Oh, so you have to have faith, but that's proved by what you do. It's just a five-letter word otherwise, just sound without substance. Works or action give it substance. Works prove faith, and faith drives works. These guys aren't at odds, James and Paul. No, they're in harmony. <clears throat> but it is on the basis of faith that Yahweh justifies his people. Mere works alone don't cut it. But that's what the Pharisees were teaching, that you could earn your way. Paul comes along and says, uh-uh, doesn't work that way. That was the problem with he was attacking in his day. Just going through the motions of obedience wasn't enough. Tie the mint, anise, and cumin, but you ignore the weightier matters. Justice, mercy, faith, and these sort of things. They had to get the whole, the whole enchilada. They were just only like way off balance. Many today think that warming a pew periodically holds some kind of power that will translate someday into a seed in heaven when they die. Well, they surely don't want to go to the other place, the hot spot. So they consider, I guess, these 20 minutes a, a week in church as fire insurance. I don't know. But to be justified is only the starting point on the uh, narrow way to salvation. To be justified means to be cleansed of past sins. We, something we can't earn, Yahweh gives it to us. Just as if you had no sin. But that's just the start. And so we tell people when they get baptized, this is just the start, not the end of your religious life. This is the start. And when you've got to start practicing the word now, because you're on a different level. When he, by considering your faith, he wipes the slate clean of past sins. And then your journey begins. That's basically what we're talking about. You live a set-apart life that comes through obedience. James doesn't contradict Paul. He just doesn't. James refines the argument in 2.24. You see how then that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. James is defining faith as he explains being justified. He shows that faith is not a mere belief. Looking at the context, he says in verse 19 that even the devils believe. That's certainly not good enough if, that's, if they can do it. The difference is they don't obey just like most people today. He explains faith was made perfect. Let's take another case. Yasha said in uh, Matthew 18, 20, 
For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Does that mean that anywhere, at any time, two or three are gathered, Yahweh's going to be there? Or Yahshua's going to be there? Well, many believe exactly that. But that doesn't fit the context. Does that mean that Yahweh is not in the midst of believers unless there are two or three gathered together? No. Paul says he's with each one who has his spirit living within. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know you not that you are the temple of Elohim and that the spirit of Elohim dwells in you. So what are we talking about here? We're two or three together. There am I in the midst. The main subject in Matthew 18 is discipline. If you have a problem, you go to the person. If he doesn't listen, you take a buddy along as an as a, uh, insurance so that, they, you know, the, um, that he can help with the problem or at least be there to uh, vouch for your, your issue. If that doesn't work, you take it to the elders, the assembly. That's what this is talking about. Look at the content, context. Yahshua's teaching that when an issue is brought formally to a panel of two or three believers who render a scriptural decision, that they can be assured that the authority of Yahweh stands behind them. This is what it's really talking about. Nothing new. Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that in the law, whenever someone commits a crime, it takes two or three witnesses to establish guilt in a court. That way, a false witness won't get away with false testimony. And even remember when they uh, convicted Yahshua, there was a couple guys that gave wrong testimony. Teachings must have proper context. Where is the hardwired connection to the scriptures for, for such doctrines that people come up with? That's the question you got to ask. Where does it tell us that personal experience is the key to truth? Where Yahweh supposedly talked to an individual, is that justification to boost him into uh, a ministerial role? There are many groups that started that way. Their, Their head guy says, oh, I had this vision from Yahweh. I had these words spoken from Yahweh. Several worldwide denominations were begun by the founding prophets who claimed Yahweh spoke directly to them and gave them insider truth. So I guess we should all stop what we're doing and join up with them, right? Uh, Wait a minute. If personal experience is a litmus test for truth, but trouble is they differ with each other in their teachings. So which one got the correct message from Yahweh? The only way you're going to know is to go to the word. Go to the word. What does the word say? All scripture is given by inspiration. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness. That's all you need is the scriptures. You don't need a guy saying, well, he told me this and I decided we're not going to have Passover this year. I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff happens when one guy claims divine power. How about just follow the word? Keep in mind that scriptures are complete. 2 Timothy 3.16. When it all boils down to it, context is king. We should study passages rather than verses. 
Then go to the verses after you've studied the whole passage. The source manuscripts, Hebrew and Greek, are one huge proof. And we use it a lot in the Restoration Study Bible. We go to the Hebrew and the Greek. And no wonder we find errors in the translation, especially rife in the New Testament. And that's why we keep, they keep coming out with more and more new versions of the Bible because they're always improving on what's there, correcting mistakes and over and over. And then there are just plain hard-to-understand passages because of the way they were translated. Context is the key to understanding most problematic passages today. Simply knowing the setting gets you in the right track of understanding. And again, I emphasize, how many do that? How many go to the context of the passage? Just grab it and go and say, oh, this is what I believe? You can't do that and get it right every time. When you have a difficult verse, check the paragraph, the chapter, and even book it's in. Perspective gives you a whole new understanding. Even cultural context is important. When you know that the Galatians were once pagans from northern France, which is uh, Gaul is an old name for France, Galatians, who came down into Macedonia, and Paul went and visited with them and tried to get them, hey, your old pagan ways aren't, aren't what you ought to be doing. Explains a lot when he says in 4.9 that they're going back to the false worship they came from and has nothing to do with Jewish days of worship. But people use that passage. And in Revelation 3.15, the Laodicean assembly is described as neither hot nor cold, reflecting the cultural features of two nearby cities. Interestingly, Laodicea was between Hierapolis, which had a hot springs there, and it was of medicinal value. People would go there to get healed for certain things. While Colossae had cold springs that were used to bring nourishment and refreshment. But Laodicean's water was lukewarm, tasteless, and not much value. Isn't that interesting, how context, once you understand it. And Paul did that a lot. You know, he goes, he goes up to Areopagus and he says, hey guys, uh, you Greeks, you got a mighty one for all the ones you worship. They're all statues there, there they all are. And, uh, but there's one that you are not worshiping, the unknown mighty one you call it. I'm going to tell you about him. See how he gets his in that way? He was very good at that. Like any puzzle, we need to put the pieces of the Bible together in order to get a clear understanding of its unity and its central message. We spend a lot of time doing that. And when we do, we'll become more competent in reading and following the word for ourselves. There's other passages that are basically taken out of context. One that... uh, Many rely on says, Yahweh will never give you more than you can handle. Well, this, this one isn't even in the Bible. 
It's a misquotation of 1 Corinthians 10.13, which reads, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But Elohim is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. That's a very different message from the misquoted one, isn't it? It's talking about temptation that Yahweh will not give you more than you can handle. He'll help you bear it. He doesn't remove it, but helps you to endure it. Why would we need Yahweh at all if we never encountered a situation too difficult to handle? He's always there to give us support and in such times and ways that draw us closer to him. Luke eleven nine, I say unto you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall open, be opened to you. This is often used by televangelists in the uh, name it and claim it messages. Want that new Mercedes? Just claim it. Just claim it. Want that winning lottery ticket? All you got to do is name it and claim it. That's what the Bible says. It's anything but scriptural. Luke eleven nine 9 has little to do with guaranteeing our personal desires. And to understand it, we need only to look at the beginning of that chapter. In Luke 11, 1, Yahshua's disciples asked him, Master, teach us to pray. And in response, Yahshua teaches them the Master's prayer. Nowhere in this teaching prayer is Yahshua claiming a new house by the Sea of Galilee or even a new set of sandals. It's asking Yahweh to help us live righteously and for the means to accomplish it. That's what it's talking about. This is Yahweh's promise. This is what Yahweh guarantees us. When Yahshua told the disciples, ask and, you'll be, and it will be given to you, he was teaching what to ask for. Things like forgiveness of sin, the coming of Yahweh's kingdom, and basic sustenance, our simple daily bread needed to allow us to serve him. Ask for these things and they shall be given to you. Ask for a million dollars and Yahshua, I'm sure, will be disappointed in you. Getting something for nothing is not a scriptural teaching. I can do all things through Messiah, which strengthens me. Again, we see the human tendency to take a single verse and force it to apply outside its content. And notice, all these things are about me that people use. They're about yourself. Yahweh's word is about him. It's all about being content and persevering through times of need rather than simply being granted the strength to do anything, which we know we we can see uh, doesn't hold water. A few verses prior, we see Paul saying, I can be contented through him who gives me strength. That's the context. In the previous verse, Philippians 4.12, Paul says that I know how both to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to be abound and to suffer need. Paul makes no boast that he can achieve or endure anything through Yahweh who strengthens him. He tells them instead that Yahweh grants him the strength to be content no matter what. And that seems to fit, doesn't it, what we see in life? Things don't always go well, not even for the believer, but we can overcome it by the strength of Yahweh. 
We just, like I said, we have the tendency to make Scripture all about us when it's about Yahweh. The ultimate good, the ultimate happiness and treasure is to be with Yahweh and Yasha forever in their kingdom, restored and made whole. We may, we will, experience hardship in this life, along the way, in this fallen world that we live in, but Yahweh works to draw us closer to him when we draw close to him from us, our own will. And in doing so, he gives us the ultimate gift, his son, to help us. He showed us the way, showed us how to navigate this life that has so many challenges and so many issues. But we still have the hope, we have the promise that he will guide us and be with us. So may that be our prayer today, and may Yahweh bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.